Okay, if you could take your seat, come on in. Now that half of our congregation is gone downstairs to the nursery. Um, grateful that you're here. Uh, we had a full weekend already with a uh, wedding rehearsal and then a wedding yesterday. So it's been a full weekend, and today, service, tonight a meeting, tomorrow a couple of events, Saturday a couple of events, or uh, Tuesday rather, a couple of events. So it's a full time, and I say that to you only to ask you specifically, I don't usually do this, but I'm asking you if you would, if you think about it, to actually pray for me. I haven't been feeling well since I came back from vacation, been fighting some sort of virus, and I am just barely able to hold my voice together, and Ben has pumped up the power significantly so that I can whisper, and I appreciate that so much. Um, how many of you know someone personally that is a know-it-all? No, I didn't ask you to point fingers at your spouse. I can't believe you guys. How could you do that in church of all places? Okay, take a moment and repent right now. Go ahead. How many of you know somebody who it seems like always has to be right, desperately needs to be right no matter what? Someone who, no matter what the subject, seems to know all about it and wants everyone else to know that they're the expert. They've been there. They've done that. They've got the T-shirt. It's, it's like, have you ever been telling somebody something about your life, like a surgery? You know, I went in and I, I had to have my left kidney removed and it was horrific and it was terrible. Oh, I've already done that. Yeah, it was bad. Yeah, I had both my kidneys removed, but I'm fine now. It's not a big deal. You know, that, that kind of person that seems to want to, they're, they're like 25 years old and they've had 25 jobs and they're experts at all of them. They're going to tell you how you should do your job. Um, I know you're thinking about somebody. But before you smugly point to your neighbor, can you be humble enough and courageous enough to admit that sometimes that person is you? Can you admit that sometimes when a question is asked, even though you don't really, really know, you think, but you don't know, you feel obligated to give the answer. You feel like, I, I should be the one to answer because I mean, who else qualifies? I mean, no one else is saying anything, so I should say something. I know the question is asked of him, but I mean, I feel like I know already too, so I'll just answer it. There's always somebody like that, and sometimes, unfortunately, it can be us. Um, you feel the need to feel knowledgeable to be right. Or if you're a Christian, the term might be to be righteous. To know that your standards, your beliefs, your attitudes about right and wrong come straight from the heart of God and there's no doubt in your mind. So that when you say something is wrong, it's wrong. Why are you even talking about it anymore? It's black and white. I said it's wrong, it's wrong. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Have you ever been... Well, let me just ask this first. How many of you are married or have been married? Okay. 
Um, have you ever been in a discussion with your spouse and you're 100% certain you remember right and she or he doesn't agree with you? Ever done that? Have you ever had an argument over it? Yeah, yeah. I got to tell you, I am the poster child for this one. I am married to a lady who has eidetic memory. So that when it comes to, you understand eidetic memory, right? There's no such thing as photographic memory. There's, not a, there's no such thing in science. Eidetic memory is the ability to have almost total recall. But Karen is like her dad in that way. So that when it comes to arguments, I just shrug and just give in because she's, she remembers. And so we will have this conversation regularly. She will say, I told you this. I say, you did not. And she will roll her eyes at me and look at me, sigh with great pity, because she knows what a I am. And um, she will say, well, do you remember? And then she will recount the conversation word by word. And somewhere in the middle, I think, oh, my word, she's right. I remember now but everything in me wants to argue it. No, that never happened. I'm sorry. Well, I want to talk to you about a person just like that today. I want to talk to you about someone who desperately wanted to be right, felt like he was right, knew he was right, and was willing to argue with God himself about it, which I think is a pretty dangerous game if you get right down to it. So, would you open up to Luke chapter 10? I want to talk to you about a lawyer. Now, I know that Shakespeare's solution to the world's problems was hang all the lawyers. But I want to suggest to you, uh, one of my events on Tuesday is actually with a lawyer about our Redemption Center and some incorporation issues that we need to work through. Uh, I, I have some friends who are godly men and women who are attorneys. But one of the things that I have found about lawyers is they're very, very knowledgeable. I have some friends that are uh, lawyers in this town who know a lot. They've been around a long time, whether they be the town and village's attorney or whomever. They've been friends for a long time. So they know a lot. But here's the other thing that happens with lawyers. They don't only know a lot generally, they know the law. And do you know when you've got somebody who thinks they're right and they also use the law to back it up, it's really hard to win in that kind of fight. Well, that's kind of what this guy had going for him in Luke chapter 10. Are you there? Luke 10, verse 25. Luke 10, 25 in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, it will be up on the screen for you. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? Now, don't you just love, by the way, how Jesus handles situations like this? I am insecure enough and immature enough that when people ask me a question, I sometimes feel a need to answer it. Maybe you feel that way sometimes. Jesus was strong enough to not feel like I have to have that answer for you. That doesn't mean, by the way, that Jesus didn't have the answer, because if you go into Matthew's gospel, a very similar situation occurred, and Jesus actually gives the answer. But in this case, he turns it back upon the student and says, well, what do you think? 
I love the fact that he takes a testing question because the scripture says clearly that his agenda was to test Jesus. He takes a testing question and turns it around and makes it a test for the quester. Let's read on. Verse 27. So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus, said to him, the lawyer, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now, the scripture tells us up front that the lawyer's motivation was to test Jesus. So this isn't a normal question to gain knowledge. This is a question that is intended to challenge. Now, I don't know if you've been in any position. It's happened to me so many times over the years. When somebody will ask me something, I will say what I believe the answer is. They will ask me another question and another question and another question. And pretty soon it becomes pretty clear. They weren't asking to get information or understanding or knowledge. They were challenging the rightness of my answer. And that's kind of what's going on here. There's a difference between a genuine question to seek understanding and knowledge and a question that is intended to challenge a person's authority or rightness in their answer. And that's what this guy was doing. Some people ask in order to learn, to glean. Other people ask in order to prove that you're wrong. And it happens pretty regularly in life. But his initial question is this. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, I don't know how many of you happen to have on your phones, if you happen to have it here. You have the Greek transliteration of that. It would be far more accurate to read that. What must I do to inherit an eternal kind of life? In other words, he's not just talking about immortality. He's talking about the quality of life that is associated with eternity. Like we might talk about what heaven would be like, and he's saying, okay, what do I have to do to have that kind of life here and now? What do I need to do to get the kingdom life here in my life right now. So he's asking for that kind of life. That's what he's asking for. And probably some of you have done the same thing. Like the Bible gives a lot of promises, a lot of commitments to you. What do I need to do to get it to actually work for me? You said that if I tithe, you would provide all of my needs according to your riches and glory. Why doesn't that always work for me? Why do I sometimes not have enough money? So this lawyer was asking that same kind of question. How do I get this stuff to work for me? How do I get the joy you promised? How do I get the peace? How do I get the sense of well-being that is associated with eternal things? And Jesus, or when Jesus turns the question around and he says to him, well, what do you think? What does the law say? The lawyer's response was, first of all, the quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6 in what is called the Shema. The Shema is actually a prayer that Jewish people prayed every morning and night faithfully. They would pray that again and again. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, body, and strength. That's what they would pray every night. That was part of their litany of prayers. But then he goes on and he adds a verse out of Leviticus, and he says, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
But then it says, after Jesus says to him, good answer. If you do this, you're going to have that eternal kind of life. He then, wanting to justify himself, wanting to feel right, wanting to feel good about himself, says to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, this lawyer, as I suspect most lawyers do, knows the law. And one of the things I have found out about lawyers is their minds work different than other people's. They tend to be, and forgive me, I don't mean this as any criticism at all, it's just kind of my humorous way of thinking about them. They tend to think like teenagers. They're always looking for the loophole out. They're always looking for the out. Okay, you told me not to do this, but you didn't say not to do that. So even though it's in the same genre, I can do it, right? So you have found as parents that when you're dealing with your children, you have to be very specific. Well, attorneys can be like that. They know loopholes. And so this attorney felt like he had just found a loophole. Jesus said, okay, that's what you're going to do to get eternal life. So could you clarify for me, wanting to justify himself, wanting to feel good about himself, who is my neighbor? Now, if you're an attorney, you know that it's wisest to never ask a question you don't already know the answer to. So you have to suppose that he already knew the answer. He knew that Jesus' response would be, well, your neighbor are good, devout, Jewish Israelites just like you. You're to treat kindly. You're to love people who are just like you. People who know right and people who do right just like you. Now, Jesus' response is a story we all know well. It's called the parable of the Good Samaritan. But I don't know if you've read it, really read it recently, but the wisdom of Christ is honestly, I was thinking about it this week, it is mind-boggling. Like they come to him and they say, should we pay tax to Caesar or not? He takes a coin, he looks at it and says, whose face is on it? It says Caesar. He says, well, then give to Caesar what's Caesar and give to God what's God's. Don't you love the wisdom that Jesus has? And here, he does the same thing with this story. Look at it in verse 30. Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Uh, By the way, kind of put this in today's parlance. Uh, Maybe for priests, you might say a pastor or something like that. A pastor came, saw him, and didn't want to be bothered because he had an appointment with his minister friends in town, and so he went on the other side. Likewise, a worship leader, when he arrived at that place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a towel head, because you do understand that's who the Samaritans were, right? They were people from Syria or modern-day Iran, people who... Good Republicans call towel heads. You know those people who believe in Sharia law? That's who this guy was. So this towel head comes along, and as he journeyed, he came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him. Again, we're talking about a guy from Iran now dealing with a Jewish guy who he hates. He went to him, he bandaged his wounds, poured on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, when he departed, he took two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, 
I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Now, the path from Jerusalem to Jericho was an arduous road. It started out at about 1,200 feet of elevation above sea level, and it dropped down to Jericho about 2,000 feet below sea level. So you're talking about a pretty significant track, and it wound its way through gullies and canyons, and it was a place that became known as the Bloody Pass because so many people were mugged and killed there for their money. Caravans wouldn't take this route because it was so dangerous. That's the route that Jesus evoked, knowing that it would give them an image of what was going on. But notice that what Jesus does is he takes the attorney's question, which is, who is my neighbor? And he says, you've asked the wrong question altogether. The question shouldn't be, who is my neighbor? The question should be, who should I be a good neighbor to? Not who is my neighbor so that I can then pick and choose people and cross off my list. Okay, I was good to my neighbor that I like. I like Rustam. So I was good to Rustam today. I greeted him. I shook his hand. I smiled at him. I was good to Rustam. So I can cross that off my list. I I love my neighbor. Now he says, no, no. The point isn't whether or not you can point out who you think your neighbor is. The point is, are you a good neighbor? And he turns the whole story around. You see, in theory, it's easy to say, love God, love people, love Warsaw. I can't honestly imagine too many of you have argued with that. I can't imagine too many of you have looked at that and said, not me, I don't think that's right, I don't think that's biblical, I don't want to love God, I don't want to love people, I don't want to love Warsaw. You'd have to be, I don't want to say. Um, But I got to tell you, that's a nice ideal When does the rubber meet the road when you're doing it? You know, it's real easy to wear the I Love Warsaw t-shirt and go down to Vertical Cafe with my I Love Warsaw mug and ask him to put it on his rack so that I can get it there every day so that as I'm drinking my morning coffee, people will know that I love Warsaw. I've done my job. I've loved Warsaw, right? It's a whole other thing when you're called to love people that you're not even sure if you like. And they're certainly not like you. They don't act like you. They don't think like you. They don't dress like you. They don't speak like you. And that's the very thing that Jesus was getting at in this story. I think that lawyer probably had his own Love Jerusalem t-shirt. I think he had his Love Israel mug. And he was proud of it. He felt like, I'm pretty good at this, and Jesus is going to give me accolades. But what happens when the people who inhabit Warsaw are different than you? Um, I go to some meetings in town uh, with, like, the sheriff, uh, with uh, the town board, things like that. And one of the things that I have discovered is that Wyoming County is at epidemic level for heroin usage proportionally, we are higher per capita of heroin usage 
than Erie County or Monroe County? What does that say to you? That we have people in this town who have some significant issues. Can you love people like that? I talked to someone yesterday, or not yesterday. I don't know, someday this week. And he was talking to me about a friend of his child, who he knew well, who was addicted to heroin, robbed from him, stole stuff from their house. They would bring him back home to try to care for him, give him in rehab, do all kinds of stuff to help him, at times doing tough love, calling the police on him. Is it possible for us to love people in this town who are drug users and drug dealers? Because, by the way, the drug dealers are just as broken as the drug users. Or what about people in this town? I don't know if you've noticed, but our town has suddenly gotten a lot of different ethnicities here. I mean, it's shocking to me. I've been here for 26 years, and I would have said that in 23 or 4 of those years, we had one person who was a little bit different. That was Damien Fry, who was this six foot six black guy. That was it. We didn't have anybody else. So people said, you ought to love the African-American community. I said, we don't have any. Now, all of a sudden, we have more and more coming in. We have more people from Middle Eastern countries, more people from Asian countries. Can we love those kinds of people? I think our problem is we want to love people until they become too demanding, until it takes too much. And then we want to run back and read our boundaries book again to make sure we know who our real neighbors are so that we can keep things in order. I don't know if you noticed in the story, but the scripture says that this man took bandages and oil and wine and poured it on him, which was part of how they would treat people at that time in order to kill germs, etc. That cost money. That wasn't free. Either he had it in his own personal goods and he used it on a stranger or he had to go buy it, one or the other. Either way, it cost him something. And then it says when he got ready to leave, he left two denarii with somebody. The innkeeper say, listen, let this cover his expenses, and when I come back, if there's more cost, I will pay that too. Two denarii at the time was equivalent to approximately two days' wages. Two days' wages. I don't know what the going rate is in Wyoming County, but let's say it's around $200, $250. That's what the guy gave him. Out of his own pocket, took $200, $250 and gave it to him and said, if it costs more when I come back, I'll pay it. And that's given it for a guy who probably hated and despised him. Did you notice when Jesus asked the attorney at the end, of these three, who was the good neighbor, what was his response? Look at it. What, what did he say? The one who showed mercy. He couldn't even say Samaritan he hated him so much. He despised those turban heads. You know those people that in airports when you see them, you don't want them to get on your plane? Those are the kinds of people that I think Jesus is actually challenging us with. People in our own town that are different than us from different countries, different ethnicities, or different backgrounds who look different. Maybe they have habits that are different than what you think is appropriate. 
Maybe they even, because in Warsaw, everybody you ask just about will tell you they're a Christian. I mean, you ask pretty much anybody. You go out in the street, you talk to somebody, you say, you know, do you know God? Yes. You, you know Jesus? Yes. Is he your Savior? Yes. I mean, you look at their lifestyle and you wonder, but those are the very people he's calling us to. I go down to Bud's and I've had people asking me, with Vertical Cafe open, are you going to go there now? And the truth is, I did go. I went just to see what it was like, see how Rod and his family had done and all of that, which is great. And, and please forgive me, there is absolutely no judgment here about Vertical Cafe. I bless a new business that has come in town. I bless the fact that they have a Christian heart that wants to see that become a part of the atmosphere of that place. But for me personally, I spend most of my day with you guys, with people who are already believers. I deal mostly with Christians. So I love going down to Bud's Deli, where most of them aren't Christians. They're good old-fashioned sinners. And they make no bones about it. They're not hiding it from anybody. But they will talk to me, and I can talk to them. Those, I think, are the kinds of people he's calling us to. Jesus turned the question around from being, who is my neighbor, to instead saying, you be a good neighbor. My question this morning to you is, if we were to live in families, in neighborhoods, in communities, in towns, they stopped asking, who is my neighbor, instead said, how can I be a better neighbor? Do you think that might make a difference in our area? How many of you have ever seen the video transformation? It, it's an old video. Maybe we'll play it sometime for you. It, it's, it's a video about places on earth where people made the decision that we're not going to let this town, this city, this community go down the tubes like all the other ones around us. We're going to make a stand for God. We're going to believe God to make a difference. And they began to live a certain way. They began to share the gospel with friends around them. They began to do works of kindness all around them. And all of a sudden, the whole culture began to change. Drug cartels were shut down because there was nobody else to run drugs anymore. People no longer had to be on the police force because there was nobody to arrest. That's the kind of thing that can happen when a community of people a family of people make the decision to actually live for God. I think that kind of effect would have eternal consequences, which is really what this guy was asking about. What does it take to have eternal life? When asked why people don't come to church, the largest percentage of people say they don't come to church because they feel judged. They feel judged. Now, they might be putting that on themselves. But I do wonder, is there something about how we are that would leave people in any way feeling less? And I'm asking you to ask those kind of questions of yourself. Do you spend so much time, uh, Karen and I were on vacation, and we went to a couple different churches. And in both churches, I believe it would be true. They had a structure for greeting people, for making people feel welcome, including first-time visitor parking spaces, water bottles and coffee mugs, greeters at the door. But I, I can tell you, and I don't think I'm exaggerating, that in neither church were we, were we greeted one time. 
They had the structure. They had the plan. In the second church, in the middle of the service, the worship leader stopped and said, okay, greet one another. And an elderly couple who was a couple rows in front of us came back, shook our hands, said hi, and then went back and sat down. That was it. That was the totality of us feeling welcomed in the place. Honestly, I've been around long enough. It doesn't matter that much. I was just, it was interesting to know. But I think for some people, I don't know if you've ever found this at all. But because we've traveled like on vacation recently, it became very real to us. You pull into a parking lot of a church you've never been in before. It can be hard. It can be scary to go inside. You don't know what you're going to experience, what's going to be in there, whether you're going to like it. Do we sit on the back row so that we can make a quick escape unless it gets really weird? It can still be hard. I can remember a few years ago we went to a church and it had never happened to me before. We pulled into the parking lot and we were just sitting there and Karen finally said to me, are you going to go in? I don't know. I'm just, I feel nervous for some reason. I've never felt this way. Is it possible people feel that way coming in here? And that part of the thing that helps is when, when we have a community of people who just like people, who like people and can't help it, who like you, no matter who you are, what you look like, what you smell like, well, I don't like to sit near them because I can tell they're smokers. Can we like smokers? I believe real and eternal transformation occurs relationally as we learn how to love people and make them feel like they belong. We listened to a man this week who said something really interesting. He said, every church has issues about belief, behavior, and belonging. And what we say to people is, if you believe right and you behave yourself, then we'll let you belong. And he says, you've got the order backwards. You need to make people feel like they belong first, which then might actually affect their behavior because they want to be like you because you're so embracing. They want to be more like you which then in time leads to some beliefs that they all of a sudden realize, wait a minute, there's something about this God thing you've been talking about. Is it possible that the church can be a source of love once again? Out of love that God manifested through his church, these are the kinds of things that the church has done through the ages. Listen to this. The abolitionist movement was begun. Public education started in churches. Literacy, human rights, civil rights, women's suffrage, all started on faith issues. Did we always get it right? No. But when we don't get it right, let's just be honest and say, we didn't get this right. Let's change. Let's repent. Let's turn around. It's not too late. <coughs> so, that's the story. That's the story of the Good Samaritan. How do we do this practically? I want to suggest that our Sprouts class got it right. This is what they came up with and asked, how do you love your neighbor? Look at this. How old are these people? Three. Three years old. For those of you that can't read it from that distance, here's what they said. Wave high. Share your toys. 
Be nice. Just be nice. Did you hear that? Try just being nice once in a while. I was talking to Josh at the break, and I said, we need to redo some of these videos because we look so mean. We got to learn how to smile. Let our face know what's supposed to be in our heart. Help people, it says. I like this one. Share snacks. Share snacks. Play together. Smile. Say hello. Be a friend. Share books. And best of all, say I love you. Now those are some great answers, aren't they? Those would be some good things for us to do as a people. I am proposing, and we as a leadership are proposing, that we as a church brainstorm about ways that we can love bomb Warsaw. That we can figure out a way to actually love this place that God has planted us. I'm not saying if you're from a surrounding area, God bless you, love that area too. But God planted us as a body here. Let's let this be like an epicenter of an earthquake that we love Warsaw. So I need some help from some of you ushers if you could help me for a second. A couple of you, hand these out. Somebody, one for each of you. I think there'd be enough. Don't worry about the size at all. While it's being handed out, what tangible, practical things can we do to show love to people on a day-by-day basis? I don't mean just as an event now. Those events are important, and we're going to do events, and we're going to have more events. What can we do to share love on an ongoing basis that keeps it in the forefront of our mind? What kinds of things can you come up with as a good neighbor to show forth God's goodness to our community. If these kiddos can come up with that list, why can't you? So, I'm going to suggest some things, but as I'm going through it, you write down some things that God maybe puts on your heart. If you don't have a pen, but you have a phone, use your phone, I don't care, make a list and think about some things. But don't just write something down Actually write something that you intend to do something about. Maybe you could um, make a batch, a large batch, like many batches of cookies, and take them around and actually find out who your neighbors are. How many of you have neighbors and you don't even know who they are? How about you make some cookies or brownies or something? And take them around and meet your neighbors. How about you invite them over for dinner? Or um, we were with a speaker recently who said his wife is a horrid cook. can't believe he said that publicly, by the way. <clears throat> if you don't have good cooks in the family, why don't you take them out? How many of you have ever gone to a restaurant and had somebody pay for your food as a surprise? Isn't that a wonderful feeling? Isn't it like it? What? Who? Well, they just didn't want you to know. <coughs> Excuse me. Who is it? No, no, they told me not to tell you. It's anonymous. I think it does something for people 
when you help in that way. Maybe you could um, pay for somebody's coffee behind you in the Tim Hortons line. You say, well, I don't know whether they're buying coffee. What I've done, (coughs) or a good idea, I think I've done it, is um, you give some money to the cashier and say, whatever the guy behind me is buying, put this towards it. And if there's more left over, do it to the next person until it's used up. Do something to show kindness to people. Brainstorm about ways that you can actually demonstrate the love and glory of God. Um, How about letting somebody go ahead of you in checkout line? How about taking somebody's cart back to the corral for them? You do know what the corral is, right? Those are where you put the carts, or you're supposed to put the carts, instead of leaving them right next to your car so somebody can't park there anymore. Walk a little bit, put them back. How about actually looking somebody in the eye as you walk by them? Do you know, I deal with different people in this town, and we are the uh, seat for Wyoming County, the governmental seat. We have a lot of social service activity that is in our area, a lot of folks who are in need. And one of the things is I've, I've watched how those folks are treated in different places. And some of them, honestly, are treated with such disrespect. It's like we got this dirty guy coming in here. And why is he in my restaurant? I don't want him in here. How about we actually treat people as honored, valued people? Look them in the eye and smile at them. Say hi to them. Um, my sister Amy was uh, caring for my mother in her last days, and my mom was in the hospital. And Amy noticed, Amy herself is a nurse, but she noticed that some of the nurses were really nice to my mom, and some of them were not nice at all. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry. Brilliant. Um, so Amy knew that she could contact the charge nurse and complain, get this thing resolved, get this nurse. I don't ever want this nurse caring for my mom again. But instead, Amy went at it another way that I thought was brilliant. She talked to other nurses and found out what all the nurses on my mom's ward liked. What kind of food did they like? And so for some, she brought in hot chocolate chip cookies. That was for me, actually, but, um... (laughs) It made the whole room feel better. Um, For some, she went to Sam's and had them make up special cupcakes for this nurse. She went around the room and found what every single nurse liked and made sure she could give gifts that was specifically for them. And do you know what she found out? All of a sudden, all of the nurses who took care of mom began to be nicer, began to be kinder. And the atmosphere in the room changed, and the atmosphere of everybody around them changed. That's what I'm saying. That's what can happen when you choose to make a difference. When you choose to stand up and say, I don't want to live just for me. One of the greater challenges for me, personally, is I am a goal-oriented person. I am task-oriented. I'm doing something. I want to get it done. Don't interrupt me until I'm done. When I get it done, then we can talk. And so I can, if I'm not careful, treat people as intrusions, as an interruption that's not so nice. 
But I've been asking God specifically recently, God, help me to see these as divine interruptions. And if I treat people that way, then I am believing that in time, something will shift in my own spirit. Sometimes you have to put your money where your mouth is. You have to do it before some feelings actually come with it. <coughs> Years ago, uh, when Karen and I first got married, we were living in Lima, and uh, then we moved to Sterling, and then we moved to uh, Watertown. My mom and dad and the family would come to visit. I have a big family. So when they came, it was like an invasion into our house, which was already challenging enough. Uh, but then my dad had a habit that honestly bugged me to no end, and it, I'm sure it must have bugged Karen. She's far more gracious than I am. But um, he would come into our house, and the first thing he would do, I can remember still, we were in Lima, upstairs, second floor in the main building in our apartment. He comes into our apartment carrying a Christmas tree, Christmas lights, tinsel, ornaments, all that kind of stuff, because he knew we weren't going to have a Christmas tree that year, which I thought was very nice. He puts the stuff down in the living room and said, we didn't want you to have Christmas without a tree. That was very nice. He goes into our kitchen and he opens our refrigerator. Now, you got to understand, in my family growing up, unlike maybe some of your families, the kids didn't open the refrigerator without permission. We didn't open the cupboard without permission. My mom made the food that you ate. That was mom's domain, not ours. You don't touch it other than to put groceries away when you're told to. So when dad came into our house, I'm thinking, that's our refrigerator. What are you doing? And then he didn't stop there. He started opening our cupboards. He's looking in our cupboards. I'm thinking, you are a nosy Parker. It took us a long time to realize he had a reason. He wanted to make sure we actually had food, that we had enough for our family. Now, did he maybe overstep some boundaries? <laughs> yeah, but his heart was to show love and care. I say that example to say, sometimes when people give gifts, they give gifts that they would like to get. They don't think about how it feels for the other person or whether the other person even wants it. So when you're thinking and you're writing things down on this paper, and I want you to do it, I want you to keep it with you. How are ways that I can actually demonstrate the love of God to my community, to my neighbors? How can I be a good neighbor? Think about and ask God to help you with timing, with what you're going to do. Like, for example... You could maybe give Dave Neeson a comb, and maybe Dave would like that. I don't know. Dave, would you like a comb? A brush. A brush. You could give Dave a brush, and he might appreciate it. But if you give me a brush, it's not going to do a lot for me. So think about what you're doing. Is what you're doing to show love even really going to be practically helpful to them? Is it going to be loving This is a call to stop acting like we're so spiritual and actually start demonstrating it in practical ways to the people around us. Don't wait for the harvest dinner. Don't wait for a special event to invite people to church. 
uh, I had uh, a lady who works for me out here at the Redemption Center. I'm going to tell you her name because I'm going to ask something of you. Her name is Tina. Tina and John Walzak. I don't know if any of you guys know Tina and John. She is a great worker. She's one of our best workers. She's been with us a long time. Good lady. Uh, her and her husband uh, are just wonderful people. They have a Christian background. They know something about God. <coughs> and I've kiddingly said to her once in a while, you know, oh, why don't you stop by? We're having a special event coming up, stuff like that. Yeah, I know, I know, you'd love me to come. This past week on whatever day it was, I think it was Friday, she stopped in because her niece had passed away this past week while we were on vacation, actually, Lynette. And she stopped in, tears in her eyes, talked to me about that and some other situations in her life. She's got some health challenges. When she got all done, I looked at her and I said, Tina, I've never said this to you, but it's time for you to get to know this God that you think you know. It's time for you to actually meet him, not just to know about him. Why don't you come and be with us? You like everything about this place. You say you love this property. When you come here, you feel more peace than any other time in your life. Why don't you come and be a part of our family? And for the first time, she looked at me, tears in her eyes, and she said, we just might do that. I don't think John would come. I said, then you come. You come and be with us and be part of our family. Now, I got to tell you, I don't know if she'll come, but I'm asking you specifically to pray for Tina. Pray for Tina, for her health. She's got some real health challenges. She wants to quit smoking, and she's having a hard time of it, a really hard time of it. But her health is jeopardized. So pray for her. Pray for Tina and John Walzak. I want to see them come to Christ. Because ultimately, the greatest gift you can give anybody is the gift of faith, to know Jesus. So all of the stuff that you're doing, which is loving out of the heart of God, isn't loving with a string attached. It's loving because you want them to know the God who's put love in your heart. That's what it's about. So don't call yourself spiritual if we can't love people. John said, don't say you love God whom you can't see if you don't even love people who you do see including the people who aren't like you, who don't look like you, who don't think like you, who don't act like you, who don't dress like you. I know that uh, when we bring stuff up like this, it can be daunting. It's part of the reason why we have a class now. Um, is it tonight? Right after the service, I'm sorry. Uh, no, and Monday night? And Monday night, thank you, Gene. So we have a class specifically called Walk Across the Room, I think it is, or just Walk Across the Room. The idea is simply this. It doesn't have to be difficult. It can be simple as shaking hands and smiling, as an introduction of your person to their person and saying, I recognize you're here and you matter to me. Do something that's going to make a difference. Something that is simple and organic, so, I've given you these cards. I, I'm not going to ever see them. These are for you. These are for you to think of ways that you can love people. Love Warsaw specifically, but if you're not from this area, like I know we have some visitors from Batavia, love your area, love your community, love your neighborhood. Maybe even start with love your family. Maybe they need the love of God. 
I've asked a couple of people just very briefly uh, to stand up and give testimony of ways that they have, just in this last week or two, kind of caught this vision to love. Now, I'm going to start it off by saying, and this might seem odd to you, but I think it starts with the family. The scripture says, if you don't first take care of the house of God, then you're worse than an infidel. So I think our loving has to also be loving one another, not just loving those people out there. We want to do that, absolutely. But I think it's because we have love here that it builds the foundation for that. So while we were on vacation, for the first time ever, I think, we happened to be on vacation with Kate and T.Y. We weren't on vacation together, but we were in Myrtle Beach at the same time. So we had the thrill of being able to connect up with them and have dinner together and just to bless one another in that time period. I had to tell you, that was one of the joys for me of our vacation, being able to see them, sit with them. I, mean, I don't see T.Y. much except for when he fixes our car. It was great to hear him talk about regular things and to be able to be together. That's the kind of thing we're talking about, not something real, real difficult. So, Jed and McKay, why don't you stand right where you are and just speak out loudly and tell us what you did. Good. Thank you. Great. So, a simple bottle of water. Nicole. Great. Again, Karen and I live right next to the trailer court. And one of the things we've decided is we don't even know who lives over there. We're so busy here, we don't know who's there. So one of the things we talk about, we're going to do our walk around the trailer car until finally people come out to say, who are you guys? <laughs> Be able to meet them, talk to them. Kayla, loudly. So love going both ways. Great. And by the way, kids are a great way to meet people. Don't treat them as if somehow they're less than. I mean, <clears throat> we're on vacation and we're going out to eat. Everywhere we're going out to eat, we're looking for grandkid substitutes so that uh, we can get our fill. So there are ways that you can show love to Warsaw. If we're going to make a difference in this town and not be the same people that are here in a year, but there be more, there be more people who come because they have been loved, they've been invited. Do you know that something like 80%, 85%, I think he said, correct me if I'm wrong, you were there, and Ben was there, I think he said something like 85%, was it, of people who were in this conference came to Christ because somebody invited them to church. It was a large percentage. Whatever percentage you gave, it was a large percentage. The vast majority don't come to Christ because they happen to be reading their Bible one day and come to Christ. They didn't hear a voice from God. The vast majority were invited by a friend to come to church. And I believe church is still a great place for people to meet God. I'm not saying it's the only way. I'm not saying you shouldn't share your faith out there. But this is a safe place to bring people. Why? Because they will be accepted. They won't be judged. They won't be looked down upon. They will be welcomed and they will belong. We'll find a place for them here in our family. That's what we're about. Would you stand with me?
Thank you for putting up with my sniffling and all that junk. I want to remind, by the way, the Costa Rica possible team that our meeting is this evening at 6 o'clock. It shouldn't be more than an hour, and it's an informational meeting where you will make decisions about whether you want to actually be a part of that team. If you haven't signed up, you're still welcome to come. We would love to have you be on this team and be a part of it. I think it will be an exciting time in which we actually go to a, another uh, Central American country and be able to share the love of God there as well as here. <clears throat> I'm going to ask if you would, just to kind of raise your right hand like this. You're being conscripted as a member of the family of God into a cadre of people who are covenanting with the Lord and with one another that you're going to make a difference. It's not enough that you know Jesus when people around you don't know anything about him. When your presence could make the difference. So in holding your hands, it's like you're swearing before the Lord. Though I should have said if you're willing. If you're not willing, you don't need to do it, obviously. <laughs> you don't have to do anything, I say. If you're willing to say, I want to make a difference. I want to actually show something of God's love to people around me. Then, raise your hands. I should have said it that way. Forgive me. Father, in Jesus' name, as we have raised our hands, we're saying, Lord, help us to make a difference. Help us to be the catalyst in Warsaw and in the surrounding villages in Wyoming County to make a difference. Let it start here, Lord, and mushroom out that we would be known as a people who are lovers, just lovers of God and lovers of people, and we love our community. We're not going to bother with the criticisms that go out there. There's always something that somebody can find wrong. We're going to look for what we can uh, stand with, what we can support, and we're going to lend our back, our goods, our finances, our time, our energy to it in order to see Warsaw become all that you have intended it to be until every person here in Warsaw comes to know you and has heard the gospel. Let us be that change agent, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen. Amen. Thank you. Go your way in peace. See you Costa Rican people tonight.